Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. A good leader is someone who empowers other people. When I say the word organizing, it means uh, not for you to take the power, but to show other people how to take power and show other people how to share that power. And so I like to say that, that power is like love. The more you share it, the more it grows. And so power has to be shared. And that's basically what organizing is about. And that power should be directed uh, towards social justice, income inequality, ending racism, misogyny, homophobia, all of these things that we're fighting for right now. That was Dolores Huerta. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. For more than half a century, Dolores Huerta has been a trailblazing activist, a labor leader, a community organizer. For those unfamiliar, in 1962, she and Cesar Chavez founded the United Farm Workers Union, where she served as vice president for four decades. But she didn't stop there. Even at age 90, she's still in this fight through the Dolores Huerta Foundation, It's a group focused on community-based organizing, advocating for education reform and structural changes inside low-income communities. She's fought for equality for the LGBTQ community, the feminist movement alongside Gloria Steinem, and for racial justice with Angela Davis. She's also the originator of the phrase, Si se puede, yes we can, which President Obama would later use in his 2008 campaign. 
In fact, it was Obama in 2012 who would eventually award Dolores the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The prize is said to be the highest civilian honor in the United States. Of course, this is an abridged biography. We get into more of her story in this episode you're about to hear. But before we do that, Dolores is an icon within our Latino community. And so, to celebrate Father's Day, I wanted to call up my dad, who's probably more equipped to set up this episode with Dolores than I am. Why don't we give him a call? Hello? Hello? Sammy? Yep, Dad. Hey. So... Is this going to count for my Father's Day call? Do I have to do another one on the day? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> Friday for crying out loud. Jesus. I was wondering how you'd respond to that. <laughs> I appreciate you doing this. So about two months ago, uh, Caroline and I figured out that Father's Day was going to fall on a Sunday. And as you know, since we release these every Sunday, that we'd wanted to do some sort of um, themed episode. And I said to you, who would be your dream Father's Day guest? Do you remember who you said? Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. But Kevin Costner, a little bit busy. Okay. Kevin Costner declined. Am I upset that he declined? A little bit. Will he one day come on this show? Absolutely. I will fly out to California if he comes out to your show. But until then... Today's guest is someone, let's be honest, it's someone a little more important to you and our family than Kevin Costner. Uh, I'm curious, why is Dolores Huerta so important to you? Oh, no, no. Well, Dolores Huerta, my God. Oh, she's the, um, it's amazing. I mean, here's a woman that has gone through so many things over the years. You know, you have to understand that the dynamic of the Hispanic culture, this is there's a macho kind of attitude, and it's true. It's it's pretty prevalent. But she went through it in a time when it was unheard of, doing what she did back in the '60s and and '70s and eight, well, throughout her whole career. I mean, it's just been amazing, and she's confronted so many things that it's just I can't imagine anyone else doing it right. All the things that she needed to confront. She is the, the ultimate feminist for, for Latina women, and she's amazing. She's right up there with Gloria Steinem. She's, she's incredible, and I just I, I look up to her because, you know, that everything she does is a calling to her. It's not a job, and it's one of those things that I've been trying to profess to new teachers all the time. This is not a job. This is a, a calling, you know, and, and she's been doing it a lot longer than anybody else that I know. She's 90 years old. She's pretty amazing. And as far as my family goes, I mean, uh, my my dad, Dolores didn't really affect his life because my dad was working out in the fields out in California back in the 40s and 50s. And then everything was trying to get unionized by the 60s. But the reason why she did what she did was because of how my father and my uncles and my cousins and everybody else before uh, had to struggle. And she identified with them. So I, I I thank her for that because, you know, a lot of the immigrants who came over from Mexico and Guatemala and different places um, didn't have it so bad, as bad as my father did. And for that, I 
I thank her. She's 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 an amazing woman. You know, Cesar Chavez is amazing. She's he's great. Love him to death. But I think she deserves as much credit. She deserves a movie, not just a documentary. You know, she deserves even even more credit than, than Cesar Chavez for the most part. Why do you think she's gone underappreciated in some circles? Because she's a woman. It's just point blank. That's just the, the God honest truth. And it's a shame. I think with you, with your generation, with Maya's generation, that, that's been alleviated, I think, I hope. At least that's what I've been seeing. But I know in my generation, you know, strong Latina women, they were heard. But it was almost like they were tolerated. They, they, would, they would use other names for them as opposed to like strong Latina women, you know. And that's, that's just my generation to, for the most part, a bunch of idiots. But, but now uh, your generation is picking up on this and it's beautiful to see. And this is the reason why, you know, she, she's been recognized so much more in the last 15, 20 years than ever before. So she is still an activist at 90. And as you said, she does consider it an obligation, as people are about to find out in this episode. I'm curious for you, before we get into it, you have always seen teaching as an obligation, as something you have to do. Do you think you're going to teach until you're 90? No. (laughs) No. No, no, no. I've got five more years. I mean, I'll, I'll do my 30 years and... um and I, I'm actually, I'm not looking forward to, to retirement. I'm not. But I just, I have another chapter. I have something else that, that I want to do in my, when I turn 59, 60. And um, Dolores is amazing because she's been doing it for so long that it's incredible. I mean, I, it's just a part of her life. She just, she knows nothing else. And, you know, with me, it's it's crazy that they pay me for half the things that I do, you know? But I, I just, like, where I teach is where I grew up, and I couldn't teach anywhere else. There's, there's no way that I could have. Um, I couldn't make those connections. I've taught over 3,500 students at this point, uh, going into high school, eighth graders. And it's just, it's been a blessing. And I, I know that I've been effective simply because they keep coming back and they tell me. Other than that, I have no, no gauge or radar on that. So, so something's ha- something is happening that's right. I couldn't answer that question not even 10 years ago, but now I can. So one final question before we get to Dolores. When you tell your students about her and her work, what do you say? That she is an example of what the whole thing of, of, of a calling, the whole thing of being a part of your community, giving back, Without, you know, complaining about it, having this positive attitude, looking out for the person right beside you, not just, you know, just, a, just around you. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it, there's a big difference. I, I think within Hispanics, we have a lot of, once somebody starts rising, you know, there's, a, there's an attitude about that. Like, they're being more white now and things like that. They moved out of the neighborhood. There, there's a hate. It's not a hatred, but it's more like a, they're just hating on you, right? Envy or jealousy. Exactly. And I don't know why minorities do this all the time, but it, we do it. And that's one of the things that I, I try to give out there. Like, we need to celebrate our Hispanic heritage. We need to celebrate the people who gave us a better opportunity to be here, right? 
and Dolores and Cesar Chavez and and all these other people were an example of that. And you know, we we don't have a lot of big name senators and and we don't have a president online to be a part of, you know, who we represent maybe in the future, hopefully in your uh your generation will bring that. And I I think a lot of that comes because there's so much so much of that putting down kind of attitude. And hopefully with Maya's generation and your generation that has to change. And I, I see that with my students. It's amazing how much empathy they have. They do. I've, I've just, I've noticed it. There's a, there's a shift in the mindset. And it's, it's really nice to see because I actually have a, a lot of nice kids. I hope to see that change too. And uh, I don't think that change would even be possible without Dolores. So why don't we get to it? Dolores Huerta, thank you so much for being here today. I, I cannot tell you how honored I am to uh, have a conversation with you, especially in this moment. So to start, I want to know, how are you doing right now? Well, I think I am frustrated uh, because I am such an activist and I have all these marches are going on, these protests are going on all around me. And uh, I can't participate because, you know, I just turned 90, had my 90th birthday, April the 10th, right in the middle of the pandemic here in the United States. And so I can't participate and it makes me very depressed. (laughs) But I don't have uh, really a right to be depressed because I am doing so many Zoom meetings and with just incredible people, with Nancy Pelosi, with Gloria Steinem, Reverend Barber. Uh, the mayor of uh, Houston, Texas. So I am really blessed in many ways because my voice can get out there, even though I'm not there physically. Uh, Also in, you know, Bakersfield, you know, Kern County. And here we have had a gentleman that was killed, an African-American, because he was run down by a car, by supposedly, and I can't verify this, but my grandchildren who have been on the marches and other people have said to me that the guy is a white nationalist, the guy that ran him down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another two Latinos that have been killed by police. One of them was mentally ill. Uh, the other one tried to hijack a sheriff's deputy car, and uh, the deputy shot him, killed him. And then in the, in the last few days, we have the news that an African-American man has been lynched, hung by a rope in Palmdale, which is very close to one of our communities. We have one of our chapters, an African-American uh, community, and this is about an hour and a half away from where they live. And then we have the news that another African-American was lynched in Los Angeles. So at the same time, we're, cel- we're celebrating the protests and the incredible marches all over the world on the behalf of Black Lives Matter and asking for changes to police misconduct at the same time that we see what's happening here. And by the way, the man who ran down and killed this African-American man, Robert Fuller, has not been charged, mm-hmm. has not been charged yet. So, you know, the racism that we see is so systemic that we see instant changes that are happening right now because of the marches and the protesters. But at the same time, 
and, and, and I say this, you know, Kern County, where we live here, is very, it's very much like uh, the South. It's very, very much like many of these uh, states where we have uh, all of these racist communities. And so it's kind of symbolic uh, what Kern County is. We are like Alabama. You know, we are like uh, South Carolina. So that's what makes me depressed. But at the same time, I have to say that I am hopeful. And just because of all of those wonderful, wonderful people that are out there protesting, and God bless them, because I liken them to to soldiers that, that are going out there to fight the enemy of racism, you know, and, and, and risking their own lives when they're doing this. So I think it's it's just remarkable that this movement for justice has just taken off and is is spreading. It's not going back down. I mean, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so... I am very thankful for that. And yet there is a part of you, even at 90, that says, I want to be there. I want to be on the ground. Definitely, definitely. And maybe that's very selfish of me in some respects, you know, but uh, I can't believe that, you know, I've been an activist since I was a teenager and, and now here I am. And it's kind of like a punishment in a way. I feel like I'm being punished. I wonder... If we can trace it back to the when and where you felt compelled to be an activist, I'm thinking of your mother, because she would always tell you growing up, when you see that somebody needs something, don't wait to be asked. If you see somebody who needs something, you do it. Do you think that's where it all started for you? Well, that was always, you know, the instructions of my mother. There was a way of life in our family that we had to help people when they were in need. And if anybody came to us for help, you couldn't refuse them. If you had the capacity to help them, that you had to do that. It was an obligation. But with me, I think it happened in my teenage years uh, because when I went to high school, that is where I really uh, felt racism and saw it manifest itself for the first time uh, because I grew up uh, in my neighborhood with a lot of uh, black folks and Chinese, Japanese, uh, Mexican immigrants, and just and even Okies, and to see the kind of discrimination that was leveled at my friends when my best girlfriend, who happened to be black, was told in high school that she couldn't be a nurse, that she really had to take domestic training uh, because she would never be able to get a job as a nurse, which was a lie, because one of our friends, uh, another black friend of ours, and her sister was a nurse, but she was a nurse in the military. And that is where my friend got the ambition to be a nurse. She did become a nurse, by the way. Mm-hmm. After high school, she went on and she happened to live in Oakland, California, and they had a special program at, uh, I think it was the Kennedy School there in Oakland, and she did become a nurse. But and so many of our, my friends and the Mexican kids also, the youth, they were always put into shop. And myself, all of the Mexican young women, we were all put into business training to learn how to type and how to do shorthand. None of us in high school were ever told, you can go to college. And so when I went to college, there was only a handful of Latinos at my community college, a handful. And my activism and, and seeing some of our friends that were arrested by police and beaten by police and that were arrested and sent to juvenile hall. <laughs> you know, one of, one of our trips that we would do is all get together in a car and go see our friends who were in juvie. 
up at Ione, up kind of in the mountains up there in California. So you saw very early on the the racism against uh, Latinos and Blacks and Filipinos too, because a lot of my friends are Filipinos. And in all of those years, in my teenage years, in my young adult years, I was active in several community groups. Like every group I belonged to, I kept wanting to see. We every we would talk about the issues, talk about the racism, but there was never any answer about how do you solve it. And so when I met Fred Ross Sr., who came to Stockton, California, to set up this organization called the Community Service Organization, and then he told us how we could solve it. And it was so simple that I could believe it was that easy. And the answer was, you organize. You organize, you you know, you talk to people, you get them involved, you form an organization, and then uh, uh, you have a, I almost said the word weapon, but you have a way that you can challenge the police and you can, you know, challenge uh, your boards of supervisors and your city councils and you can advocate at the state legislature how to make changes. At 25, in the year 1955, through Fred Ross, you meet Cesar Chavez. But I'm curious, you've always used this word obligation in regards to your activism and your work. It's an obligation that you have. Was there a moment before you were 25 or after 25 where you thought to yourself, yes, this is why it's an obligation? Well, as I said before, that was sort of the way that we were raised as children. I remember as kids, because I grew up during the time of of the Depression, and uh, when the hobos would come by our house, and my mother always said to us, when they come to the door, be sure and feed them whatever you can feed them. So we would make them, we were just kids, so we would make them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or or we would make them burritos, you know, beans and the tortilla taco, you know, make them a taco, uh, whatever we had. But the thought of saying to somebody, we're not going to feed you, that never entered our mind. And, and so to combat racism, I always like to remind people that we are one human race and that our race began in Africa. You know, 100,000 years ago, our race began in Africa. And then and the only way that we survived as a human race is that we had to protect each other uh, because we were the weakest of the animals. And had we not protected each other and taken care of each other, and that's where the obligation comes in, we would have been lunch for the bigger animals. <laughs> and so that, that you know, just our, our whole existence as humans on this planet, uh, it, it proves that not only that we, we can survive, because I think that's in doubt right now when we think of global warming and proximate wars that people like to talk about. But the only way that we can survive is that we have an obligation to protect each other. And when I do talk about us being Africans, by the way, uh, or coming from Africa, I like to remind people that we are all Africans of different shades and colors. You know, we're, we have a lot of different ethnic groups. We have a lot of different nationalities, but we only have one human race, Homo sapiens, and that is all of us, and we are all the descendants of Africa, and not not just the human descendants, but also in terms of civilization, because this is, again, where human civilization began. And so I like to add another note to that, and I just like to say that we can tell the white nationalists and the KKK and the neo-Nazis, and yeah, j- just get over it, okay? You're Africans. <laughs> just get over it. <laughs> just get over it. I think that's going to be the tagline 
for this episode. Uh, I want to go back for those who may be unfamiliar with your story. In 1962, you and Chavez resigned from the community service organization and launched what would later become the United Farm Workers Union. Of yourself in that moment, you said that you had all these negatives in your life, perceived negatives. You were in the middle of a second divorce. You had seven children. What do you remember about that 32-year-old woman trying to make something of herself despite these challenges? Well, I was grateful uh, that I had learned the organizing skills from Mr. Ross. So again, there was a way that we could address the issues of farm workers because uh, people talked about farm workers and talked about farm workers and talked about farm workers, but again, no, nobody ever came up with a solution. And so we had learned this magical formula called organizing uh, from Fred Ross. And, uh, and I had uh, organized a couple of groups, that, which I turned over to other labor unions, and then they kind of fell apart. Assessor had the same experience with a group that he organized down in Oxnard. And when he turns his group over to another labor union, it also it kind of dissolved. So when Sessa said, when he said to me, uh, we have to do it and we, we can organize a union. But then he said, but if we don't do it, it's never going to happen. So I say I was grateful because I think that Caesar had that much faith in my own organizing skills and my dedication uh, to farm workers that he would even invite me to do that. Uh, so I, I was thrilled and I was grateful. And I really did believe in my heart that we could do it. And, you know, when you think about the 60s, that ambience was in the air because this is mm-hmm. when the civil rights movement was happening in, in the South. And if you ask anybody who was active in the 60s, they would probably share the same sentiment. In the 60s, we really believed that we could make changes. Angela Davis said of the 60s, there was a belief that we could fundamentally change the world. Exactly. And, and you know, a lot of changes did come out of the 60s, a lot of cultural changes. You know, that's when the LGBT movement started, uh, the second or third wave of the women's movement, the environmental movement started there in the 60s. And then, of course, all of the improvements that were made uh, in the civil rights movement. So you did have that belief. And I'm kind of thinking that that's where we're at now, that people, the people power can make it happen. I think that the opposition is more consolidated uh, now than it was uh, in in the 60s in terms of the rich have gotten richer and uh, more powerful. There's been more merges of conglomerates, etc. So I think it, it, and they're, they're more entrenched when we look at the police, for instance, uh, when I was growing up, if you look at police then and you look at police now, it's like their power has just uh, magnified, you know, a thousand times. So in some ways, it's going to be harder, but in other ways, it's going to be easier. And the reason it's going to be easier is because uh, you have the internet and you have your Facebooks and you have Instagram and and all of these instant messaging uh, tools that young people have now, or that everybody has at their disposal, so that you can actually mobilize hundreds of people uh, in a moment. Do you think it's your belief in progress that allowed you to keep moving forward? Like I mentioned, when you started the Farm Workers Union, you had to move seven kids to Delano, California. You had to uproot your life, not to mention in the middle of a second divorce. That couldn't have been easy. 
Well, actually, uh, I have been divorced, as you said, a couple of times. I find divorce very liberating. <laughs> My mother feels the same way. <laughs> yeah, because, and unfortunately, that's another thing. And I know with the Me Too movement and the women's marches, that, again, we've made a lot of progress when it comes to, uh, to women in leadership. And which is very badly needed. And it's really interesting when, uh, you know, they were just talking about the places where women are serving as governors uh, and uh, or mayors that you have had, uh, uh, you know, more cooperation when it comes to COVID-19. And the things are just better managed when women are there as leaders. So I think uh, I always think of divorces as being a very healthy option. <laughs> I want to get to some of the core principles of the UFW and how they can maybe relate to how we move forward right now. Um, you said in order to make a, a successful union that we need to build an association that addresses the day-to-day -day needs of these folks. And by doing that, you had to live like the people you were representing. The one thing that we did in, in the movement is that anybody who worked with the farm workers movement really had to live pretty much at the poverty level, like farm workers. You know, like we didn't have wages, we had stipends, uh, $5 a week, $10 a week. We had our, our expenses paid for by the union. If anybody got sick, their medical expenses were covered, our, our automobiles and the gasoline and any expenses we had were covered, but we really didn't have a lot of money. And I think that really helped people relate uh, to farm workers, because people can talk about, yeah, I really care about farm workers, but they don't live on the wages that a farm worker makes, and they don't go out there and do the really hard work that farm workers do. So the farm workers would really have faith in us and, and know that we were not just trying to be um, charitable, you might want to say, or patronizing to the workers. They really mm -hmm. respected what we were doing, and they trusted us. Because when you're trying to form a union, people have to trust you because you're asking them to take great risks of losing their jobs or asking them to go out on strike, you know, where they're, they're going to leave their job behind them uh, to try to get better working conditions and wages or like we did on the boycott, have them go thousands of miles from their homes from Delano to New York City or to uh -huh. Canada or God knows where, but to be able to fight for their, for their rights. So people do have to trust you. And that was just one big way of establishing that trust with the workers. Why do you think people trusted you? A lot of times uh, we hold back uh, because we think, uh, again, that people are going to think that we're going to take advantage of them or just use them. We shouldn't let our own hangups, you know, keep us from helping people because our sincerity will come through, even if sometimes it has to be tested. But, uh, you know, we should stick with it because uh, God knows we need so much help in so many of our communities of color. It's simply because of all of the discrimination that's built up over the years and there's never been enough resources that, that are put into uh, these communities. And of course, that's one of the things that we have to fight for. Hopefully, out of this pandemic, uh, you know, people will not forget once the marching stops that we've got to fight for resources. Right now, there's a bill in the Senate right now called the Heroes Bill. 
And I do want to give a shout out to everybody that's listening. And please, you know, email your senator. And if you have relatives in some of these Midwestern states or these Southern states where you have more conservative senators, email your relatives or your friends and say, could you just send an email to your senator and ask him to vote yes on the HEROES bill? It's already out of the House of Representatives and it's now in the Senate. So we need people's help uh, to be able to get this bill passed out of the Senate. And this bill will actually bring in more money into communities uh, that need the money right now because we don't want them to be forgotten. You know, right now, uh, across the country, people have been protesting um, on behalf of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And something really interesting happened when I was doing research for this because in 1967, there are protests across Central California. And it's interesting because looking back, some of the farm owners and the families of those farms gave interviews to the press where they said, we want our workers to be left alone. They're being harassed by these protesters. There are no issues in our labor force. And then they said this line that I can't forget. They said, these protesters are outside agitators. And that term, outside agitator, I was thinking, where have I heard that recently? Oh, every day in the news, 50 years later, in this moment, on every channel, you've had mayors and governors um, across the U.S. say in the beginning of the protest that it's really just outside agitators. And I'm curious, because you've been in this fight for so long, why do you think people in power primarily white people in your case, like to point to these kind of ominous, unknown outside agitators? Well, they don't want to take responsibility, number one. And they want to uh, kind of put the blame on somebody out there. But uh, And they don't want to acknowledge that there are people in their own community that, that are being affected by racism or in the case of the farm workers, that it's their own employees that are out there striking. And so, you know, they want to put the, put the blame on somebody else. Like, I kind of like what President Trump does. You know, <laughs> he always blames everybody else except himself uh, for the things that he does. And they want, don't want to own up uh, to their own responsibilities. So that's where that's coming from. Do you see growth in the kind of protests you were doing in the late 60s to right now? Oh, Definitely. Uh, and I mentioned before about the tools that people have today, you know, the social media tools, and that we've seen this happen twice in recent years, uh, first with the women's marches. Uh, when the women's marches, uh, you know, they started uh, and then in Washington, D.C., and then they, they escalated throughout the entire world where you had women's marches going on in England and in France and, and in all of these other countries. And it happened so so quickly. And, of course, now with the... Uh, process uh, about George Floyd's murder uh, by the police, uh, then you see that 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 same thing was uh, repeated again. And so I think it's amazing that that this has happened. And and can I share something with you? Yes. A friend of mine told me that he was with the Dalai Lama. And he asked the Dalai Lama, do you ever think there will be peace in the world? And the Dalai Lama said, yes. And this person was startled. And he said, Really? How? And the Dalai Lama answered, the Internet. And I think that's what we have just seen. 
in these last uh, few weeks here that the internet has been the platform that has mobilized so many people all over the world uh, to protest uh, police brutality and racial discrimination. So I think it can happen. And young people, as usual, are always at the front of the movements. You know, whatever movement has ever existed, the labor movement, the women's movement, the LGBT movement, the environmental movement, it's always been the civil rights movement. It's always been young people who, who have been at the front of the march and, and you know, to make this happen. Part of the great power of the Internet, in my view, is that you can reapproach and reexamine history in a way that previous generations never had access to. Our generation has access to videos and photos and documents and audio. So I want to watch this clip with you, if you don't mind. It's from the evening of June 5th, 1968, as Robert F. Kennedy delivers his California primary victory speech. Okay. Let's take a look. I want to thank uh, Cesar Chavez, who was, was here a little earlier. And, uh, and Bert Corona, who also worked with him, and all of those Mexican-Americans who were such uh, supporters of mine. And Dolores Huerta, who is an old friend of mine and has worked with the union, to thank her and tell her how much I appreciate her coming tonight. We have uh, certain obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens, which we've talked about during the course of this campaign. And I want to make it clear that if I'm elected president of the United States, with your help, I intend to keep that. What do you think about when you see that video now? Well, it's a, a tragedy. And, you know, we just uh, memorialized uh, Robert Kennedy because it was June the 5th, just uh, 10 days ago or so. And, you know, there's another shot of Robert Kennedy and just before he was killed, that right there that in the video, you just showed the opening part of his speech. But the last words that he said before he left the podium, or some of the last words that he said, he said, we have responsibilities and obligations to our fellow citizens. So when you said the word obligation, you know, I think that is such a strong word. Uh, because it really means that we have a civic duty. And that civic duty does mean that we protect each other and we care for each other. And that's why we have hospitals and we have nursing homes and uh, we have daycare centers and schools. But the other one, part of that is that we that's why we pay taxes. And we pay taxes so that we can have uh, uh, sanitation workers and we can have street lights and sidewalks and streets and all of the other things that we need to protect each other as a, as a society. But a lot of folks don't take that word seriously, mm -hmm. obligations. And uh, and, they, and then the other word I think that counters or maybe that kind of stifles obligation is the word apathy. And Helen Keller said that there was one evil in human beings that doctors had never been able to cure, and that is the word apathy. So I think that the protesters and the demonstrators that are marching have kind of been able to do a giant blow against apathy because they're out there showing this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You do it by marching and protesting. And then we've got the other big ask that we're asking protesters and everybody else to do, 
is to vote. Uh, we have these elections coming up in November. Uh, the conservatives are going to try to suppress the vote as much as they possibly can uh, to keep people from voting, to see how they can win the elections, to stop the progress that is uh, has been made from the 60s, which you know they're already doing. There's been a big pushback on that. But then also to stop any progress that people are demanding from going forward. So uh, that, that big word is such a big word, obligation. Watching that video and thinking back to where you were at in that moment, there are two things that strike me. One, you have someone of pretty huge prominence who could potentially be the next president saying, Dolores and her colleagues and the work she's doing, it matters. It matters. On a national scale, it matters. And then the second incident is that Within 24 hours of him saying that to you, he's shot. You say within minutes of his saying that, he's shot. Within, within minutes, because, you know, he came down from the podium. Uh, we walked together towards the kitchen, and then that's where he was killed. So it was within minutes after his saying that. And, you know, it goes back to what you asked me before about how did I feel about starting the union if you have the capacity to help people, it's an obligation to do so. And so starting the union, I felt, was an obligation that I had. And all it took was courage to be able to do it because, you know, I had the skills. I had learned the skills, again, from Mr. Fred Ross Sr. And I would learn more skills from Cesar Chavez. So at that moment, I felt there was no question about whether I would or would not. It was something that I had an obligation to do because I had learned the skills of organizing. And a lot of people say to me, well, aren't you going to retire now? You've done a lot. Isn't it time to retire? And my, my feeling is if I can touch one more person to go into her community and get her community to become activists. And so every community that we can engage and touch and we can activate, then this is why I don't want to retire. Because as many people as hmm. we can make them understand that they have a power to change things in their community, that they have the power to change their lives. Now, this is such a powerful message. And it's like finding gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, or it's like having a magic wand. Because you see folks that have never gone to school, people that are not even English literate. But once they find out that they have power, they go out there and do amazing things. And, and it's simple. And we've got to somehow touch those other people that don't understand. Because we know if they don't understand, then they can't join us. Because they don't understand the roots of racism, that it came from slavery, that the roots of, of misogyny comes from domination, which in a way kind of also comes back to slavery, about you, that they're being against labor unions because they don't understand that working people need to get paid a living wage and, and fighting for the health care and free education, these things that we know are possible in our society. And when they tell us there's not enough money, we know that that's a lie <laughs> because there is enough money and we just have to keep working to make all of these things happen. I want to talk about some of the personal motivation you may have had because uh, your great-grandfather fought in the Civil War on the Union side. Your father was in the military. Your brother was in the military. And yet, you've said, 
I remember when I first read the Constitution of the United States in grammar school. I always felt so proud of being an American. I thought, God, we have all these rights, you know. In a democracy, you make your demands, and then somebody will listen to you. Justice will prevail. But I found out that when you do this in an economic situation, it doesn't quite work like that. Once we started making those kinds of demands, we had the same response that the black movement has had. Our people were killed. The system doesn't really want brown people or black people to have an organization or to have any power. I found out that no matter what I did, I could never be an American. Never. Where are you on that? Well, I guess uh, looking back on those words, and I was obviously right in the middle of our struggle, I guess I could kind of reword that and maybe just say that as Americans, it's not only our right, but it's our duty to protest and to organize because that is how this country was founded. And when I say founded, I'm talking to the government. By the way, I, I like to distinguish between country and government. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I like to remind people that when the founding fathers of our government came uh, to America, there were people here, our Native Americans, and, and they had their own civilizations. And so we have to kind of remind people that the United States was a brown country when people from Europe came here. Whether it was the Spaniards or the English or the French there was a country here of brown people. So our founders were Caucasians. So they were the founders of our government, not our country, okay? But we know that those founders that came here from Europe, that they founded the United States of America by rebellion. They stood up against the English and they stood up against the French and everybody else, you know. So we, we have a government that was, was formed by rebellion And so maybe when we see ourselves as Americans, as citizens of the United States of America, that we have to realize that that is part of our heritage. That is part of our heritage. Unfortunately, slavery is also part of our heritage, okay? So we have to undo the bad parts because even women, you know, we're not allowed to vote, as we know. So, you know, we have to undo the bad parts of of our heritage and then build on the good parts of our heritage. But definitely rebellion, standing up, against false leaders and people that didn't really represent us. Uh, that, that That is what we're supposed to do. Do you feel like an American now? And I don't remember in what context I said that. That was so many years ago. But when you think of America, think of North America and South America. And so we should really describe ourselves as being citizens of the United States of America because there is a Latin America, a continent, a whole continent called Latin America. And then, of course, there's Canada also and Mexico, which are part of the North American continent. So these are all what we call the Americas. So we have a tendency to be very singular and kind of focus and, and just talk about when we say Americanos. Americanos is all of the two continents, North America and South America. So we should really define ourselves as being citizens of the United States. When I went to Mexico, you know, I was born in the state of New Mexico. I've always considered myself Mexican. But when I went to Mexico for the first time when I was 17, people there did not consider me a Mexican. They Mm -hmm. called me 
estadounidense. You are a person from the United States of America. You're not a Mexican because I wasn't born in Mexico. And neither were my parents, by the way, but my grandparents on my dad's side were, but they didn't consider me a Mexican at all. They said, eres estadounidense, you're from the United States of America. So anyway, but you know, we just have so much ignorance in our country and we've got to, in order to really uh, erase the racism that we talked about earlier and continue talking about, now we've got to start teaching our children on pre-kindergarten, because children are not born racist, about all of us are Africans and talk about the great civilizations of other countries in Africa, in Latin America, about the Mayas and the Incas and civilizations that were huge civilizations, even before the civilizations in Europe. Civilizations in Europe were kind of the last ones, you know, uh, to come about uh, before these other great civilizations in these other countries. And then also that the civilizations in Europe were built on the backs of colonization, the gold from Latin America and the exploitation of other countries. So our children can really be educated. And then in, in how America was built, it was built by Native Americans and African slaves and immigrants from all of these other countries. I call it the Howard Zinn history of the United States of America. But we've got to do this. We're going to erase the ignorance that causes racism. And as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, racism is an illness. Racism is an illness that has to be cured. And we might say, okay, that's a little far-fetched, but it isn't. When you think of somebody that traveled 200 miles to kill people because they were Mexican in El Paso, Texas, or people that killed Jews in New Jersey because they're Jews, or killed people in Birmingham because they were black, you know, in, the, in that church. So this is a real poison and an illness that we have in our society, and we've got to do everything that we can to cure it. And I hope that part of the protests and the marches, that they will call, we're calling people out. The NFL is apologizing, okay? But when, they, when are they going to give, call him back his job <laughs> in, in, in the NFL? When is he going to be hired by a football team? So we want more than lip service. We've got to see all of these organizations, private and public, do whatever they can. And also providing jobs to people of color, especially uh, African-Americans or black people, you know, because we know that they are completely locked out of so many, many, many jobs. And uh, this has got to be changed. Your friend and poet from Delano, his name's Luis Valdez. And he once wrote that revolution starts with self-love. If you're a member of an oppressed people, you have to develop self-respect. And that starts by developing some affection for who you are. You love your family and you say, okay, but why does the world regard them as inferior? Why does the world regard them as ugly when, in my eyes, they're quite beautiful? That's so important because the the type of education that I'm talking about also inspires children of color when they know about their history. Because if you don't know about your history, then it's very hard for you to have an identification and the only thing that you hear are the kind of slurs and the attacks and the racial remarks that are made against you and your people. But when you know your own history, you can have that dignity that you deserve. Uh, and we should have. Every person should be uh, have a sense of dignity about who they are. And so, again, if people have that dignity, then no matter what they tell them, they, they can actually fight back and realize, hey, it's not me. 
there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the person that's attacking me and that's calling me names at the, and making this, these remarks against my ethnic group. It's not me. It's them. They're the ones that are ignorant. They're the ones that are wrong. And it's not me. They can stand up and defend themselves. So that, that historical aspect of everyone is very important. In thinking about what Luis wrote, where are you on self-love? Do you love yourself? Well, I think I'm like most people. There's parts of myself that I love. There's parts of myself that I'm constantly criticizing. You know, we have this little critique committee in our brain that is always telling us what we what we should be doing and what we're not doing right, what we could do better. Like your opening question was about how I was feeling in this moment. And, and you know, I just keep criticizing me and saying, you should be out there on those protests. And then the other part of me is saying, well, you can't go out there because you got to stay on lockdown and all of, by the way, all the Dolores Huerta Foundation, which is my organization now, because I left the Farmworkers Union. Oh my God, it's been over 20 years ago. My organization, everybody's on lockdown. A few of us did go out because we were doing food banks, uh, uh, delivering food to our poor income communities. A lot of them are farm workers. And, but part of me is saying, why aren't you out there? And the other part of me is saying, no, you can't go out there. <laughs> so I think I'm just like everybody else, you know? We love part of ourselves, but we know that uh, other parts of ourselves, we still have room for improvement. Even at 90 years of age, there's plenty of room for improvement, I can tell you. In 2002, you created the foundation. Also in that year, as you mentioned, you left the union. And I wonder what you were thinking about as you were saying goodbye. Well, that was a difficult decision. I mean, I had kind of committed my whole life to the organization. I never thought in a million years that it would ever get ever get to the point that I would have to leave. But um, that moment did arrive, and I did have to leave, and it was very painful. Uh, but what really pulled me through on that was my, my children. And uh, one of my daughters said to me, Hey, Mom, now you can really be free. Uh, you can, you know, do what you want, do the kind of organizing that you want. I had been involved in a lot of the work on the feminist movement. I'm on the board of the Feminist Majority Foundation with Eleanor Smeal. And just before Caesar died, I had taken a few months uh, leave uh, to work on the feminist campaigns. You know, I was uh, doing that work, which really excited me. So, you know, there were other things that I really wanted to do. So I was torn, but at the same time, there were so many other things. And I kind of wanted to go back to the uh, kind of grassroots organizing that Fred Ross had taught me to do and uh, organizing people in their own communities and not just limit my organizing to farm workers. The, the United Farm Workers, we had built a strong foundation. We had a law in the state of California uh, called the Agricultural Labor Relations Law so that farm workers could organize and be protected by, by state law and able to do that. So in many ways, I felt that uh, the, the basics and the foundation for the union had been built and people could continue to, uh, con- continue to organize. We had all of the tools in place uh, to keep going. Uh, the other thing that happened, I felt that when Caesar died, I was 63 years old, and I didn't know how long I was going to live, you know, and so I felt that we needed to have uh, younger leadership to take the union forward, uh, because leadership is something that you can't learn by osmosis. It's something that you've got to go through experiences, uh, difficult experiences. You've got to be tested, and you can't do that on the sidelines. You've actually got to be right in, in the leadership to be able to uh, to have those experiences. 
And so so I, I felt that that was the best decision on my part to make at that time. What makes a good leader? Uh, a good leader is someone who empowers other people. And that's what organizing, the type of organizing, when I say the word organizing, it's not like organizing your closet, right? <laughs> when I use that word and people like myself that know about real organizing, it means empowering people. It means uh, not for you to take the power, but to show other people how to take power and show other people how to share that power. And so I like to say that, that power is like love. The more you share it, the more it grows. And so power has to be shared. And that's basically what organizing is about. It's about getting other people to understand their power and, and, and actually showing them how to use that power and how to share it with other people so that it grows. And that power should be directed uh, towards social justice, income inequality, ending racism, misogyny, homophobia, all of these things that we're fighting you know, for right now in our country or fighting against to get rid of some of these isms. Well, one instance where you're fighting against these isms, right, was in 1988, protesting outside of a fundraiser for then-Vice President George Bush. On behalf of the farm workers, you were on the front lines of this boycott of grapes. And then, suddenly, things turned violent. Well, I was beaten up. It was a very horrible, horrible, brutal attack, extremely painful. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of children, and when you have childbirth, it's very, very painful. I have to say that that blow from that policeman was equal to or stronger than anything I've ever suffered in childbirth. It was that, it was that strong, and uh, it was very painful. I'm, I'm just very fortunate that I survived. And had it not been for this one gay person at the San Francisco. Uh, Memorial Hospital up there, the San Francisco General Hospital, uh, who saw me in the gurney, and he saw that I was very, very pale, and he said, oh, oh this woman's in trouble. I'm going to take her. She said, I'm going to take her gurney out and stick it right in the middle of the aisle where the doctors have to come, and sure enough, a doctor saw the gurney there and almost tripped over it and said, what is this gurney doing here? And then he ran out and said, this woman is looks like she's really in trouble. And the doctor said, oh, yes, she is. And they rushed me in and, and saved my life. But I was uh, minutes away from death, really. I had lost so much blood. and But I was bleeding internally, so they couldn't see the blood anyway. I was saved. I was very fortunate that, that I was saved. Uh, but in 2000, in the year 2000, I had been on the campaign trail uh, when uh, Gore was running for the presidency and I actually suffered an aneurysm. And uh, there I was disabled for seven months. You're someone who's always talking about moving forward and moving forward. And in that moment, you had to stop, right? Well, yeah, something like now. I have thought of that often. Here, we've been on lockdown. It's only been for like, what, going on four months now. And then I was uh, disabled for seven months. But the thing is, I was so disabled that all I could think about was getting well. Because, I mean, I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. Uh, I was completely disabled, and it took me months to recover. So all I was focused on, on then during those seven months is how can I get my health back. Did you feel recharged once you did get your health back? Did you feel like you had a renewed purpose to keep going? 
Well, I felt that it was the same purpose I had before. And in fact, <laughs> uh, I was being fed by a tube. I couldn't even eat. And uh, they finally took the tube out at the end of May. And then I was on a march in July, <laughs> about five, six weeks later, uh, the Farm Workers Union was doing a march to Sacramento, and they asked me to come on the march, and I did. And my family was very upset with me. They thought, we don't think you're ready to go on this march. Uh, but it turned out that uh, that I was. I was able to march, uh, and it was a, about a 150-mile march in the hot sun because the march was, I believe, in August and, and made it was able to make that march. One of the things that we didn't talk about, I just want to throw it in there, again, going back uh, to your comment about obligations and responsibilities, is that I was also a very active Girl Scout when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I was a Girl Scout for 10 years of my life. And part of the precepts and the philosophies of the Girl Scout is service to others. So everything that my mother taught me as a kid was reinforced uh, in me, again, when I was a practicing Girl Scout for those 10 years of my life. So that kind of reinforced uh, the type of uh, philosophies that I have uh, tried to live my life by. We're in such a polarized moment in this country where the ideological divide feels so steep. And I'm curious because throughout your life and career, you sat across from people who didn't look like you who didn't think like you, who didn't feel like you. So what are and, and were your tactics and temperament when working with people who didn't share your ideas? There's a quote that I said once and people repeat it all the time. At the moment that I said it, I didn't give it that much uh, you know, importance. But that quote is that every moment is an organizing moment. And I say that because when we are talking to people, that don't always agree with us, if there's some way that we can teach them or or reach them I guess is, a, is a better word, uh, then I think we have to use that moment. And, I, and I've done this oftentimes. I have been in situations when someone has uh, made a uh, racist remark, and I have called them on it at that moment, uh, in the, or a sexist remark or, or an LGBT homophobic remark, and I call them on it because I think you have, we have to seize that moment to try to educate that person. And there's different ways to do it. Sometimes you have to call somebody to one, to the side. And sometimes you have to embarrass them in front of other people. I mean, if you're only going to be with that person for that one moment, you have to do it. Every chance that I get, I try to break through those barriers. I testified um, with a human rights campaign way back, way, way, way long time ago before it became a cause. And when I went to testify on their behalf, at a hearing in San Francisco. And when I walked in that room, and my good friends were up there on the podium, Phil Burton, John Burton, Harvey Milk, they didn't know what I was going to say. And when I came out and I said, no, I believe that discrimination against uh, people who are gays or lesbian is as cruel and unjustified as people uh, discriminate against people because of their color or because they're farm workers, you know. And even if we're not invited to the table, but if we can get out there and uh, talk on behalf of people who are di being discriminated or exploited, there's that magic word again, obligation. We have an <laughs> obligation to do so. You started that, okay? I did. <laughs> I I'll take the blame for it. It's okay. <laughs> okay. You've talked about it in the past, but in thinking about the future, um, there's a lot of conversation about how the future is women. 
And you said of that moment working for the UFW and then later on in your life even, that the whole macho thing comes in there and you want to be the tough guy. I mean, it's just the way men think. Not all men. But I always say men want to see who gets the blame and who gets the credit. Women say, let's get the job done. Who cares? Men can't help it. They've been doing it since they were little kids playing marbles. Oh, I think that's true. I think that we see some change in men now uh, when they can start recognizing their own machismo or recognizing machismo in other men. I know sometimes men get uh, made fun of uh, because they are Mr. Moms and have to stay home with the kids and, and while the woman works. But I think that's also changing. And, and again, going back to education, while we have to do this anti-racist education, we also have to do uh, this education against machismo and our little boys to make them understand that women are equal. I love to talk about this when I talk to kids. I remember once a group of kindergartens, I said, or maybe they were first graders, I said, did you know that boys and girls are equal? And all the boys yelled, no. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it takes education, and that's what we have to do so that women are not seen as sex objects, right? But they're seen as fellow human beings. And, and all of this, can we can do so much, but we really got to work hard at it. And, and I do think that we can do it with future generations and, and you know, keep... Uh, poking away at their current organization, our current generation, so that they can become more enlightened. I quoted in the beginning your mother saying, if you see somebody who needs something, you do it. But I left out the second part, which I want to say before we go. The second part is that she said, you don't talk about what you did. Once you talk about what you did, you take the grace of God away from that act. To me, in the context of your career, I know you have intermittently struggled with taking credit for the work you have done. But I'm interested at 90, do you see your footprint in the world? Do you see the effect you've had? Oh, definitely. Uh, I definitely, because I can look back and I can see where I made a difference in legislation that was passed in California, uh, in Washington, D.C., and I know that if I had not been there, that, that it wouldn't have happened. And I guess I've kind of altered that statement also, especially when we talk to women uh, and people of color, too, because women, uh, we are so reluctant to take credit for what we do. And it's important that we do take credit for what we do, especially uh, for other women. And for, and for young women, because uh, women, uh, they get their, their work, it's expropriated so often, and they are not given the credit uh, that, that they should have. And it happened to me several times in the union, uh, where some of my fellow officers would take credit for my work. And, you know, I finally got to the point where I just didn't let it happen anymore. And I had to embarrass a couple of them after they made public statements. And then I would say, well, actually, I did that work, <laughs> not, not, not my fellow officer. And they were very furious with me after that. Why did you do that? I said, well, why did you try to take credit for my work? So I think a while ago you were talking about self-care, and we can add to that self-pride. So, you know, we have to be proud of who we are, and we have to be proud of what we do. And I think that comes with the territory. And it's very difficult for women to do that because women are so socialized that we have to be supportive and, and uh, you know, help other people, especially men, 
that we don't think about, hey, wait a minute, what about me? What about myself? Dolores, this is something you've also may have never been asked, but I'm curious. Fundamentally, at your core, why do you love people as much as you do? Wow. Uh, you know, I really don't know how to answer that question. As you can see behind me, I have a dolls <laughs> on my bookcase. I love dolls, and uh, uh, I love children. I love people. I don't know. I guess that's pro- probably because I'm a human being, and probably at our core, all of us are there. If we're not there now, we were there when we were children, uh, because, you know, children uh, get so excited when they see another child. I think it really comes from the roots of our humanity, and uh a lot of times uh, along the way, we get disappointed in other human beings of the way they treat us or they disappoint us or they hurt us. Um, so then we want to kind of turn off people and uh, isolate ourselves from people. So I think it's, it comes back to having faith that we still have to have faith in humanity, uh, even uh, as, as bad as it may seem, which reminds me of uh, when Nancy Pelosi was asked if she prays for Donald Trump. And she said, yeah, she does pray for Donald Trump. And I believe Nancy Pelosi that she prays for Donald Trump. So even uh, the people that hurt us the most, we have to remember that they are also creatures of God, even when we dislike them. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that you have to love everybody. If if people do hurt you, you can put them in the balcony of your your world or of your mind and just, uh, you know, stay away from people that hurt you. If they have a tendency to hurt you, then stay away. And not that we shouldn't be forgiving. We should be. But again, we do have to take care of ourselves in terms of self-care. My last question. What do you say to all the people in this country right now? Young people especially who have just woken up and have said, I am in this fight. I need to be out there. What do you say to them? Having done it, for 75 years. I would say welcome to the movement for social justice and peace. And uh, we welcome you. We want to thank you for joining. And we want you to keep active and organize other people. If you have a friend or a relative or somebody that is not active and isn't involved, reach out to them too. Because remember, we have to share the power. We have to share our knowledge. And we have to reach out to others that are not yet active are not yet enlightened. And the main thing, don't give up either, uh, because uh, as we go forward in activism, uh, things don't always happen as quickly as we want them to happen. Oftentimes, things don't happen the way we want them to happen. And sometimes we have to be patient, but the main thing is not to give up. Keep your eye on the prize, and don't give up. My grandfather came from Mexico and Durango in the late 40s and early 50s. And He worked in the farms and fields of Bakersfield and and then Fresno. And I didn't share this with you before we started recording, but I wanted to say it as we left that I know in my heart I wouldn't have the great luxury of doing the work I do without his sacrifice and I must say yours. So I thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And by, by the way, my great-grandfather came from Durango also. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we may come from the same tribe in Durango. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> Dolores, thank you very, very much. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Have a good day. Gracias. Si se puede. our show. Special thanks this week to Damaris Lau. To learn more about Dolores and the work she's doing, be sure to visit her site at DoloresHuerta.org. We'll include a bevy of links and resources in our show notes, which you can find at TalkEasyPod.com. Also on the site, you can find Sebastian, a short film I directed about my grandfather who immigrated from Mexico to America in the late 40s as a farm worker here in California. Dad, did I miss anything? Well, if you're new to the show or you've been here for a bit, you can check out some of the past episodes like with Gloria Steinem, Naomi Klein, Beto O'Rourke, one of my favorites, Noam Chomsky, and DeRay McKesson. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you do your listening. That was pretty good. It, it feels like you're auditioning to do your own podcast right now. I know. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to drop us a line, send it on over to TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. I do my damnedest to respond to each note. And uh, I know everyone on the team appreciates uh, anyone who reaches out. And finally, speaking of our team, our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lin, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Beck. Our social media is by Kiran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shanoi. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy, Dad. Thank you for doing this with me on uh, Father's Day. Thank you for making it possible and uh, being such a good sport. And now, a song for the road. Have a safe week, everyone. Hoy, como ayer, yo te sigo queriendo, mi bien, con la misma pasión que sintió cuando te vi junto al mar al recordar los momentos sublimes que ya no podré disfrutar nunca
ayer Yo te sigo queriendo mi bien Con la misma pasión The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.